welcome to episode 69 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Basie, the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the associate editor there. And today we're going to be talking about sculpture. And to celebrate the beginning of spring and the weather finally improving, we're focusing on all the sculpture you can see outside. In the last few years, sculpture parks have been springing up all over Britain. So there is loads to look forward to as more and more outdoor sculpture installations open their gates to the public. So I love sculpture parks and I love going to visit them and country houses which have wonderful sculpture in their grounds. A great example, of course, is Houghton Hall in Norfolk, Robert Walpole's old seat where David Marquis of Chumley lives. Uh, We've talked about it twice on this podcast, once about the Anish Kapoor exhibition they had there, which was absolutely fabulous. And also uh, we talked to the artist Chris Levine about his installation at Houghton. So it is one of our favourite two places to see sculpture and it reopens in May and we'll bring you news then of what they're going to be staging there. Other parks that are open to the public include Jupiter Artland, the award-winning sculpture garden just outside Edinburgh, which was started by the philanthropist art collectors Robert and Nikki Wilson in 2009. Its season this year begins with the unveiling of a large bronze sculpture, Lay Here For You, evoking loss, grief and longing by podcast guest Tracy Emin. We're delighted to hear this uh, because obviously we had Tracy on our podcast last week. We won't stop talking about that for months and months and months. Uh, And it's actually Tracy's first Scottish show since 2008, which makes it even more important. I agree. We love talking to Tracy. Uh, But meanwhile, uh, Chatsworth, the glorious 17th century Derbyshire home of the Duke and Duchess of Devonshire, of course, has teamed up with a creative team behind Burning Man Festival in the Black Rock Desert in Nevada to stage Radical Horizons, which is an exhibition of 10 monumental sculptures featuring eight existing works and four to be built on site. Uh, They do look quite extraordinary, these sculptures, and completely wild in that setting and that opens on the 9th of April and is entirely free and very different but also wonderful are the Tremonier I probably uh, pronounced that all wrong but Tremonier Tremonier Sculpture Gardens which are lush tropical gardens which overlook St Michael's Mount in Cornwall and they're the setting for works by over 20 artists including James Tyrell, David Nash, Richard Long and Peter Randall Page. There's also Tout Quarry in Dorset which is an extraordinary abandoned stone quarry and nature reserve near Chester Beach and Portland Harbour, where you'll find 60 hidden sculptures, all carved from stone, including Anthony Gormley's Still Falling. So we've got Forestry England, which has also got behind the idea of sculpture in woodland. It's collaborated with Grisdale Sculpture for t- to put in 10 miles of woodland in the Lake District since 1977, and with the Forest of Dean Sculpture, which has been showing contemporary and new installations for nearly 40 years. Another great place to see sculpture, of course, is the Sainsbury Centre, 350 acres of parkland around the famous Norman Foster Sainsbury Centre on the University of East Anglia campus. And of course, John Sainsbury died just a few weeks ago, so perhaps a pilgrimage to pay tribute to this incredible arts philanthropist. And then, of course, there's Farley's House and Gallery in Sussex, the home of the surrealist Lee Miller and Roland Penrose. And if you want to see and actually buy some really contemporary work, head for the Sculpture Park, which champions the work of around 300 sculptors. 
Now, every two years, Rosie Pearson transforms her garden in Astle, Oxfordshire, into Europe's biggest exhibition of contemporary stone sculpture. It's called On Form, and this year's On Form is going to run from June the 10th to July the 12th. It's one of the most beautiful gardens in England, and it used to belong to the Mitford family. It really is a glorious day out, but booking is essential. Um, Bookings just open, so make sure you get on their website and book your slot. Also in Oxfordshire, but nearer London, is Little Milton, where there's a new sculpture park, Albion Barn and Fields, set in 50 acres. So we're definitely going to be going and checking that one out. I have been there, and it is a wonderful site for sculpture. Yeah, it's owned by this chap, Michael Hugh Williams, who's uh, been an art dealer for many, many years. And it's a it's a great place to visit. Now it goes out saying that no conversation about sculpture is complete without talking about Barbara Hepworth and Henry Moore, the Tate, where I am actually a trustee. Have I mentioned that? Before? <laughs> I think you might have uh, done that. <laughs> <laughs> actually, the Barbara Hepworth Museum and Sculpture Garden in St Ives has been run by Tate since 1980. It joins the Trevin Studio where Barbara lived with her husband Ben Nicholson and young family at the start of the war. Most of the bronzes are in the position. Barbara placed them in herself, and it's an absolute must. Then there are the Henry Moore Studios and Garden at Perry Green in Hertfordshire. Henry Moore lived and worked from 1940 until his death in 1986. And finally, of course, the fabulous Yorkshire Sculpture Park that has really led the way in exhibiting sculpture in landscape. Yes, and the Yorkshire Sculpture Park celebrates its 45th birthday this year. And so we're delighted that one of our guests today is Dr Helen Phoebe, an international curator and head of curatorial programme at Yorkshire. And our other guest is Godfrey Wurzel, director of the Henry Moore Foundation. Good morning and a very warm welcome to you both. Good morning. Morning. Uh, let's start with you, Godfrey, because Britain's love for seeing sculpture outside really seemed to accelerate when Kew Gardens exhibited Moore's work back in 2008. I know you'll have been asked this a thousand times, but what is it about Henry Moore that really captures the public imagination? Henry Moore offers so much in his work that there's something for nearly everybody in there. But I think the central aspect of that people can latch onto is his humanity. I think he he manages to create forms that are very realistic through to forms that are very abstracted, but they're relatable for so many people across cultures across the world. And I think um, his long career, which remained um, high level, he really reached a, a very early high point and he maintained it. He understood the world he operated in. And because he understood the world well, he was able to empathise. And I think those characteristics in him enabled him to talk to all kinds of people in all kinds of ways. And his art relayed the same accessibility. And there's quite a lot of Henry Moore at uh, um, Yorkshire, of course, isn't there? Yes, it's been my huge privilege to work with the foundation and Mary Moore and develop a project in 2015, which was Henry Moore Back to a Land. But that's part of a legacy of Moore first visiting in 1979. So the sculpture park was in the very early days then and still very much a vision in Peter's head, I think, by that point. And Henry Moore very generously contributed the the first grant that the sculpture park ever had. He was his first patron. And I've grown up around Henry Moore. You know, I'm from Wakefield. I've been to the sculpture park on school visits. And so 
working on the 2015 show, I really realised and came to learn how radical Moore was as a young artist and a young man. You know, I think having grown up around him, it seems such an establishment figure, but actually, Godfrey, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think he co-founded the CND movement. He was, you know, very politically motivated. And one of the reasons, for example, he used native British stone as a young artist was to, he said he wanted to lose the Greek spectacles. And that was very much tied in with an anti-empire building. Um, The reason that he looked at artifacts from all over the world and from different cultures was very democratic um, and to try and lose this sense of the West and the Greek and Roman civilization being preeminent and actually looking at African artifacts, pre-Columbian Mexican artifacts. And, you know, I just learned this huge, rich, radical, still hugely relevant side of the artist that I hadn't realized until then. That's absolutely fascinating because it does, uh, we'll talk about Ukraine in a bit, but it uh, reminds us how contemporary Henry Moore remains some 40 years uh, after his death. That's quite astonishing. But I just want to talk about somebody else who's uber contemporary, and that's, of course, Peter Murray, the founder of the Yorkshire Sculpture Park, who founded it in the mid-70s. Yes. Now, he's retiring. Yes. Uh, In fact, he's so retiring, he was too shy to come on the podcast. (laughs) Uh, But you are publishing a book uh, to mark his retirement. So take us, uh, in the absence of Peter Murray, take us how he came across the idea, how he made it happen, and some of the rip-roaring stories that the people yeah. think. Well, you know, Peter himself is very radical, he's still very radical, he's still very um, committed to social justice, and there were three main reasons for starting the Sculpture Park. One, to commemorate the fact that Henry Moore and Barbara Hepworth were born so locally, and really became two of the leading figures in 20th century British art, international art, actually. To uh, open up what had been a beautiful historic landscape which had been in the preserve of an elite for nearly a thousand years to open that up for everybody to enjoy but also to bring the best of international art national and local art to a regional audience and he'll say himself in 1977 in what were the coalfield industrial villages of western south yorkshire there was not a huge appetite for contemporary art and it's really credit to him and the sculpture park that now we have half a million visitors a year in normal years and it's helped to support a critical mass so we have the hepworth the henry moore institute there's the sculpture international which is a, a partnership between four venues including leeds art gallery as well and to me as well, the legacy personally is it's very much about education. It's very much about Yorkshire not being second best to anywhere in the world. And I was fortunate to be taught at Liverpool University by David Thistlewood, who was an authority on Herbert Reed. And my professor taught an alternative view of art history, a bit tongue in cheek, but that said Yorkshire, the centre of modern art didn't move from Paris to New York, it moved to Yorkshire. It was a bit tongue-in-cheek, but what it did was really open up the possibility that Yorkshire could be a centre of modern and contemporary art, and that's something that Peter's built on that legacy of as well. And, you know, Herbert Reed was also a Yorkshire-born art critic who very much promoted Moore and Hepworth. He co-founded the ICA, um, and he wrote a book in the middle of the war in 1943 called Education Through Art that said that everybody's potential was realised through a creative approach to education. And that's very much the founding philosophy of Bretton Hall College, which the Sculpture Park grew out of, and it's still really part of who we are. It's where our roots are, and it's something that we continually advocate for the importance of creativity in young people's lives, because if you don't nurture that you don't nurture innovation you don't nurture problem solving you know and what the world needs is a generation now who are up for solving the incredible problems that we're facing well which brings us to um keith tell us about your phd which involved you curating an exhibition there 
My PhD really wanted to try and understand the place of art and cultural institutions in the world. So not just a place where you see great art and have a nice cup of tea. You know, it's actually a place where really exciting and innovative and society changing ideas and coming together of people can happen. You know, our audience is incredibly broad. And yeah, the Kiev project came about in 2012. I was invited by a curator there, Katerina Taylor, to create a project. It was the first time that contemporary art had been shown in the public realm in Ukraine. And it was to, as part of the 2012 celebrations around the Euro football taking place in Ukraine and Poland. Um, in fact, they ran out of grass <laughs> because all the grass had been used for the football pitches. Um, so they had to get some emergency grass in to put around the sculptures. But we curated a special project of five artists, including Jauma Plenser, whose work is very humanitarian, very much like more, very humanitarian based. And it became a real focal point, people having their wedding photographs taken there. And then there was also the main project, which was a competition for artists from all around the world to propose new sculpture and have it made, have it fabricated. And half of those artists were Ukrainian. And of course, Henry's, Henry Moore's wife, Irina, was from Ukraine, um, although it's part of the Soviet when she was born there. So there, there's kind of a strong connection. So Mary Moore was very interested in this project we were doing as well. And it's just, you know, it's heartbreaking now that my friends, my people that I've worked with for many years on various different projects, they've been here, we've had artist exchanges, you know, they've been given guns by the government to defend their homes. And it's, it's yeah. Um, but what's really interesting is how resistant they're being culturally as well so they're still trying to have the Ukrainian pavilion at the Venice Biennale they've managed to get the artwork out of Ukraine the artists and the curators are still in Ukraine in Lviv primarily um, but you know what a powerful statement that will be if they can actually stage the project as they plan to do. It sounds a trite thing to say that war also produces great art as well as great misery and of course Moore is famous for his blitz sketches in the London Underground. Pavlo Makov, who is representing the Ukraine in Venice this year, was, was asked about what it feels like to be making war, making art in war, what, what it feels like to be working whilst under attack. And immediately, Pavlo cited Henry Moore as an artist who has gone through exactly that process. And for many, many people, those shelter drawings remain the absolute zenith of Moore's graphic work. They, they, certainly the market regards them in that way. And, um, and, and they, we, we spoke at the beginning about, about trying to understand Moore's appeal. Well, Moore was fairly, as any good contemporary practitioner hopes to be, Moore was fairly derided for, for taking art off in a direction that people weren't familiar with and that he really challenged perceptions for, for a British and global audience about what art could be. When war broke out and Kenneth Clark on the War Artists Advisory Committee brought more into that uh, process, he generated a body of work that immediately transformed him into the National Treasury Still Remains. And I think that that was a really critical moment for Moore. And we didn't really see that, that some more abstracted work returning until well into the 50s and on into the 1960s. Helen, you've got Yorkshire Sculpture Park. You've got this thing called the Oak Project, which is can art save us from extinction? So obviously that's 
ridiculously relevant at the moment. Uh, Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, this is, um, so the Oak Project um, is an independent entity that works in partnership with YSP. And the first major commission is Silence by Studio Morrison, Silence Alone in a World of Wounds, which is an installation in the landscape, which was made from materials from the site and from the artist's woodland. And it's a really beautiful structure where it's quite a meditative space and it's built within and around a number of silver birch trees and then it's compacted rammed earth as the foundations in the base timber and then a heather thatch roof and it's part of research that the oak project is doing with miles richardson professor miles richardson at the university of derby about nature connectedness which very much ties in with a a main theme in our programming around well-being of people and planet and how the two are absolutely interrelated so professor richardson's research has demonstrated that if people walk in a woodland regularly not only did they feel better you know there's there's evidence that biologically and physiologically we are affected by that but that you are more likely then to care for that woodland we also collaborated with Selfridges last year and Oak Project this year on a music prize which was the idea of Professor Richardson for young people up to the age of 25 to create an original piece of music that referenced nature because their research has shown that popular music since the 1950s has gradually, references to nature have gradually decreased. And actually we recite Henry Moore, there's a quote of Henry Moore is that it's the job of artists to be the eyes on nature and for people to, through our, their eyes become bigger and they see nature, you know, and we see that here when people are tuning in to something aesthetic, then they do look at a tree in a different way and they draw that tree and you can see it all kind of playing out, which must be the same with you, Godfrey at the foundation. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's interesting. The Henry Moore Foundation's principal base in the south of England is at, is at Perry Green in Hertfordshire. And we're actually only, as the crow flies, about 20 miles from Piccadilly Circus. But we're a, we're a million miles away from central London. Um, once, you, once you arrive, there are no street lights, So it's really, really dark in the evenings. It's silent except for the sounds that animals make. And it totally resets you. And when, when people come to visit us from London, and, and we never saw such a, an influx of visitors from the capital until COVID arrived and people wanted art, they couldn't go inside museums. And they came to us and they were able to walk in landscapes. As Helen describes, it, it just changes gear. It changes people's open-mindedness. And um, and that's exactly, as, uh, again, return to where, where you started, Charlotte, it's exactly what Henry Moore wanted. He didn't quite have, have the Yorkshire landscape, which he desperately envied um, Peter Murray and his colleagues at, at the Sculpture Park. So he did, with his assistants, make a small hill so he could interrupt the, the flat lands around, around his house. What I'm really interested in about sculpture parks is, you know, when I went to Yorkshire for the first time, they're just these, you know, let's just talk about the Damien Hurst for a minute. That's absolutely massive. And and I would say, you know, quite at odds with nature, really. I mean, it's very, very kind of, it's it's quite challenging. It's, it's you can describe it for us, Helen, but it's enormous and bright and all the rest of it. How on earth, I mean, what happens when you're going to move these? You, there must be some incredible stories about getting things in and out. Yes, we um, a few years ago, actually, we did um, an eBay charity auction where we auctioned off different experiences. And by far and away, the, the highest bid was for a day with the technical team. And actually, there was a really moving image about sunset on the day that Russia invaded Ukraine of our technical team installing the iconic love sculpture. And it just felt like such a moment. And it's already become almost a point 
point of pilgrimage, actually, for people, this huge, red, bold statement of love in the landscape and what a perfect year for this project. And Peter's from the very beginning taught us not to overcommit the space. So we would never be a museum in the open air in the sense that we would have a permanent collection. The majority of the work is loaned to us. That keeps um, a degree of flexibility. And even though there's a permanent exhibition of Henry Moore sculptures, those pieces change. And that fulfills a promise actually that Moore made that he wanted to see his work in what is the country park. It's the old deer park of the estate where it's, it's the more rough and ready where there are sheep and there is, you know, there's a tenant farmer we share the land with. And I believe that Henry Moore really wanted to see his work with sheep, Godfrey, that they felt they were the right scale. Um, so cows were too big and dogs were too small, but sheep with just the right scale to, to create the effect that he wanted. And so, yeah, it's a huge undertaking to bring these pieces in. And, and some are, so we at the moment have an exhibition of work by David Nash. And so his work is mainly around trees. And so that's something which integrates more naturally, perhaps, in the landscape. Um, but then you have something like the Damon Hurst, which is a huge bronze um, pregnant woman. And there's also the huge bronze myth, which is um, a unicorn type figure. And they are curated in a different way. Like you say, they are. Their impact is that they aren't natural within the landscape. And it's that balance of curating in different ways and bringing in different projects you know some of the projects we have could be mistaken for elements of the landscape rightly so we have um for example Andy Goldsworthy worked with one of the tenant farmers to create a sheep fold and he was really keen that it's seen as a functional artwork and he worked with the tenant farmer to design that but we have the you know the huge privilege and joy of a 500 acre estate that we can artists can play with and they can play in and they can one of the programs that we run is around residencies and they're always open-ended and from the very beginning there have been artists working on site and it's the creative heartbeat of the place that there's practice happening and we never put um a commitment or a pressure on the artist that there has to be an outcome and it's really just a space for free thinking and for research. Is anything permanent there? Are the Hepworths there forever or will they be moved around as, as well? So the family of man is the longest loan. We have had those um, from the estate on loan for around 40 years so it's the only place in Europe you can see the full family of man together and that was partly um, through the fact that although Hepworth died before the sculpture park began she was really committed to her work being in an open-air setting and in a very democratic space so not just in collections but in places where people could come and have a picnic and and just be among them and so we were recently gifted 200 works by Elizabeth Frink's son, Lanjamet, when he passed away. And before that, our collection was around 70 permanent pieces. So we've never had an acquisition budget. Some of the pieces are permanent, like the James Charles Sky Space, when they feel built into the fabric of the of the landscape itself. So yeah, the Elizabeth Frink gift, which is this incredible resource for exhibitions, we loan pieces out, but also for researchers. And that is testament to a long-standing relationship really that Peter and Liz had, and he curated a memorial exhibition when she passed away as well. Your talk about moving sculptures around reminded me of talking to Houghton about installing the Anish Kapoor exhibition, which again took sort of three days per sculpture with massive cranes and you had to put in sort of concrete platforms for them but uh sort of country house sculpture has become a thing hasn't it with Chatsworth, Houghton, 
it's much more common now to go to these great houses and find contemporary sculpture in their gardens. In my career, it's very interesting that um, art history, in, in its broadest sense, has given over the mantle of popularity to contemporary practice. And it, this, is, this is a trend that is not all good, because I think more attention needs to be given to historic art, probably in, in the media, I would say, at the moment. One of the great things about Houghton, we, we worked with Houghton the year before um, Anisha's show, I think. Um, it was brilliant because we knew Henry Moore would bring an audience to Houghton that wouldn't ordinarily go. But wow, isn't that one of the greatest properties in the country? Isn't that a property that deserves everyone to see it? Can you tell us a bit about the foundation now, Godfrey? Well, we're, we're essentially a three-legged stool at the foundation. Um, Henry Moore set the charity up primarily to advance the education of the public in their appreciation of visual art. That was that was why he kicked off. And, and actually, the Sculpture Park and the foundation are pretty much twins. We, we both kicked off at around the same time. But for Henry Moore, he did want his legacy preserving. He wanted his home preserving and his studios. So if you come to Perry Green, you'll see his, his drawing studio where he sketched um, the sheep that Helen mentioned earlier. But there's also a maquette studio, which is the inside of an artist's brain. It's quite a, in, incredible. And it's made up of small models of works he was working on, but pieces of bone, pieces of flint. You can You can read... Moore's entire career in this one room with hundreds and hundreds of small objects. And then a carving studio, a patination studio. The whole gamut of what an artist working on Moore's scale is, is, is there for people to experience. And in his home, you can walk around and you can see the art that he collected and things that inspired him. But Moore was really committed to, well, I think in a way indebted to the history of sculpture and, the, and the, the future of sculpture was important to him. So he dealt with that in two ways. One was to establish the Henry Moore Institute in uh, the centre of Leeds, adjacent to Leeds Art Gallery, where we host researchers in what is, I think, is possibly Europe's most comprehensive sculpture library. We also have a very... Um, important partnership with with Leeds Art Gallery and we hold for them with them an archive of sculptors papers not Moore's papers but the papers of many many artists who came after him and um, we also run a program of exhibitions and research events um, looking at sculpture in its entirety um, just to just to illustrate that a little bit uh, at the moment we have a show called A State of Matter which is the use of glass by modern and contemporary artists. It includes artists like Hugh Locke and Mona Hartoum and Joseph Kosuth, and they're all manipulating this remarkable material in their, in their own ways. Um, but um, fairly soon we're going to have an exhibition of 19th century polychrome sculpture. So we aren't delimited in any shape, way or form. We have this huge openness to what sculpture might be and what it is and, and historically as well as um, where it's heading in the future. Henry Moore wanted to be able to give financial support to needy projects and I, 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 I can't say this for sure but my sense is that at key times in his younger life Moore benefited from the generosity of others and I don't think that ever left him and even though yes he did become hugely personally wealthy. That wealth to him was a kind of common wealth. And I think he always imagined that it would be given back. He gave his home, he gave his estate, he gave his collections. And he also established a legacy by which the foundation, uh, after he, he'd gone, would be able to keep up this work. So we, I think at the moment, we're, we're, we're sort of north of 35 million. 
and we continue to give about half a million pounds away every year. Wow, so at the moment we, we, we just gave a grant to support um, Dosu Hu, who's a Korean artist who's got a show in Australia. At the same time, we, we've given a grant to Ealing Council to help it look after its Martinware ceramics collection. And, and I think that they're the sort of opposite ends of, of what we tried to do. But we, we have this idea of sculpture in, it, in the expanded field. But we really want to enable people to stretch what sculpture can be and, and support them in doing so. For example, when um, COVID first struck, we, we moved quickly to be able to directly grant aid about 30 artists, just because we know the, the, we know the way artists work, particularly in the earlier stages of their career. They have a studio, which is expensive. They make work, which is expensive. And they usually work one or two jobs. They might be technicians in galleries. They might do a little bit of teaching. But all that work disappeared. And, and so the foundation is able, is independent and flexible enough to intervene when we, when we think we can, we can make a difference. From my memory, so many sculpture exhibitions and projects have been supported by the foundation over the years. And, you know, that's such a huge part of the artist's legacy, not only his own practice and the influence that's had on people, but that essential support has changed British sculpture forever. Well, I think that's fantastic. For anyone who hasn't been to either Peregrine or Yorkshire Sculpture Park, we can't recommend them more <laughs> highly. And happy 45th birthday to Yorkshire Sculpture Park. We, we can't let you leave without telling us a Peter Murray story. <laughs> One of my favourite stories is something that actually didn't happen, but um, in the 1980s, there was an exhibition of work by Bordel. And one of the pieces was a huge bronze horse without a rider. And it travelled to YSP from France and it came in an open top truck and they had to work out a route to get it from um so avoiding low bridges um of getting it all the way to yorkshire and there was a man in the back of the truck with a stick lifting branches up you know that was the way that the sculpture actually got here and then the return journey they got very close but peter's idea was to send it back by hot air balloon and they actually got approval from everybody um apart from the insurers the insurance company <laughs> the only people who said that that wasn't a really realistic way of returning but how brilliant would that that would have been like an art performance in its own right this how much did this uh, sculpture weigh? Exactly, Ed. Tons, <laughs> tons and tons. How on earth can you lift the exactly. sculpture? I can see it coming in a chin-up. Sort of yeah. I think there is actually correspondence in the archive where they were talking to the army about exactly that possibility as well. Uh, but I think the army didn't think it was the best use of a Chinook. Um, but I yeah, I mean, I, I think the army is very short sighted. They, they don't take art seriously. But I mean, themselves. I think that's just an amazing example of the problem solving creative approach to, you know, the soul of YSP. And Peter's always been incredibly generous in um, supporting colleagues and artists in an open-ended approach. Just out of interest, so the massive Damien Hurst, how tall is it actually? And did that come eight in meters. millions of different boxes? No. I mean, what? No, in one piece. So what? How, what? How did that get there? The, yeah, um, <laughs> a, a long truck and a crane. Gosh. <laughs> Have either of you got a sculpture in your garden? I don't actually. I've got a few in the house, but not in the garden. But yeah, we haven't got we haven't got a very big garden, and I suppose it is a bit of a bus with holiday. <laughs> Godfrey, you must have told the trustees you can't show your face in public unless you've got a large Henry Moore in your garden. I, I'm working on it, Ed, but <laughs> as yet, no. I, the nearest I can get is an old sundial, and I, I'm afraid that's it. <laughs> 
Oh, well, thank you both so much for coming on. That's absolutely fantastic. Thank you very much indeed. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Sadly, that's all we've got time for this week. But don't forget that the latest edition of Country and Townhouse is out now at selected newsstands and Waitrose, as well as online, of course, along with the 2022 edition of Great British Brands. We can be found at countryandtownhouse.co.uk, where you'll also find our sister podcast, House Guest, with all the latest news on interiors from Carol Annette. And just add forward slash newsletter to subscribe both to the weekly magazine newsletter and to the Great British Brands monthly one. We love your feedback, so keep it coming to Charlotte at countryandtownhouse.co.uk. It'll be Oscar night when we air next Sunday, so what better time to be talking about movies? We'll be discussing the BAFTA winners, as well as looking forward to the Oscar winners with BAFTA committee member Anna Higgs, who is also Head of Entertainment Partnerships for Northern Europe at Facebook. So make sure to tune in then to hear all about the latest releases and what movies to watch if you missed them first time round. See you next week. Goodbye. See you next week.